This is a test of the Shure VP88. This is a test of the Rode VideoMicro. This is a test of the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus. This is a test of the Rode NTG1. This is a test of the Shure SM58. This is a test of the iPhone XS microphone. This is a test of the Rode VideoMic Mi L. This is a test of the Heil PR40. This is a test of the Apogee Mic. Worst name ever. This week I want to talk about something I think is undervalued and more important than most people realize in production, and that's audio. And I brought on two of my audio experts that I look to when I'm trying to get information. One of them has been here before. It's Ray Ortega. He was here on episode five, right when the podcast was just getting started. Hey, Ray. Hey, what's up? I'm the I'm like one of the few that doesn't have a picture on on the website, so I want to fix that. <laughs> okay, you got to send me one. I uh, I didn't have pictures <laughs> at the time. It's been it's I been know. upgraded since. There is a, an advantage and a disadvantage to going early. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's think. true. But I'm glad to have you back now that the show's evolved a little more. We're a little more sure of what it is. And, and the goal is to help people produce the best content possible. And you do that in the podcast world, especially. Um, you are a professional podcast producer, so you do that as your full-time job. But then I know you because you're the host of a few shows like The Podcaster Studio and Podcasters Roundtable, which are shows where you podcast about podcasting. You're telling people how to do a better job, and it's been very helpful in all the steps I've taken in creating podcasts over the years. So thanks for that. And then on the other end, I've got Curtis Judd, who I found more recently. We haven't really met before, Curtis, but I'm really glad to have you here because I've just been binging your YouTube videos for a few weeks now. You've got tons of mic reviews, uh, educational videos, and and you also have your own educational stuff at Learn, Light, and Sound. And yeah, I mean, you're just fantastic at teaching people how to make better audio. Well, thank you. It's very kind. And I think both of you hopefully know a lot more than me, so... Instead of giving my half-baked advice, I can uh, refer to some real experts. But I, I do know that one of the biggest things you can do to make your production, any, any kind of production, a lot better is, is improve the audio. Uh, most of all, because if it's bad, it's really obvious. It's one of those things that is kind of invisible as it gets better. Like when you have perfect audio, most people don't realize how good it is. But uh, any mistakes can really make your production suddenly feel a lot more amateur, whether it's just a video post on social media or a film production or a podcast. And today I want to go through kind of all of those things. In the show notes here, I've got it written that we're going to talk about phones and social, vlogging, in-studio videos, and podcasting and voiceover. And we're going to dive into each of those and how anybody can do a better job of each of them. I think the the thing that strikes me and that I find uh, more and more as I kind of delve into audio is I don't think that most humans realize exactly how much we rely on our hearing to experience the world around us. I think that it's a sense that we have that, um, you know, if someone asks us about it, we say, yeah, 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 we're, we're you know, glad I can hear it. It helps me in my life. But then, you know, it kind of peter off at that. <laughs> but I think what, what the reality is, is that we rely on our hearing, I think, probably as much as our sight um, in a lot of ways. So for example, if you're in a location, or say you're walking down a city street, um, you're using your hearing to to understand what's around you, how far things are away from you, how, you know, what things are coming towards you, what things are going away from you. All that is is mostly sound and mostly our hearing capabilities. And our brain is doing an amazing amount of processing to process all that information. And so I think that that's part of what plays into this idea that you cited just a moment ago, which is that 
if you're listening to some, or watching some sort of production, if if the visuals are so-so or maybe not so great, as long as the audio is okay, you generally won't lose your audience, at least not as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your audio is bad, you're gonna you're probably going to lose your audience a lot quicker because it's going to be hard for them to really kind of follow the story or or follow what's happening. So I think there's some there's some great value to that. So for those that aren't convinced yet, um, try getting some earplugs and going around for a day and see how it affects your life. Yeah, I think an interesting example of it in video is when there's an annoying sound in the background. There's some kind of strong background noise. And if you allow the shot to show what is generating the noise, it alleviates a lot of the annoyance. So even if a jackhammer is going off, mm-hmm. if you never see the jackhammer, it's much more frustrating to have it as, as background audio than if there is a shot cutting to it and all of a sudden you can see what's producing it. And it kind of reveals this hidden relationship of how you're using audio to create a world around you, even if it's on screen, even when it's not physically around you. And yeah, no, I, I think it's really interesting and something that I'd love to learn a lot more about. For me, the evidence of what Curtis is saying is the way you see new creators begin. And it's, you know, we were talking about how audio really is pretty much more important in the experience than video, but people don't focus that on that first, right? So you almost always see a channel that maybe looks great and has good content, but the audio seems to be the missing piece of the puzzle that's going to bring up the quality. And sometimes people don't even realize this. I like to say that a lot of people don't know bad audio until it's like up against good audio. So they don't really know it until they hear it. So creators online, it just takes them a while. And I think when they wonder, why isn't my stuff quite as good as yours? You know, maybe the content's good and I know how to shoot video, but audio seems to be that missing ingredient it's almost an imperceptible level of professionalism that you don't, again, realize until either you're in it like us and you just hear it or you're someone else and go, wow, this is just great. It's almost like a good movie. You're not sure why it's better than the next one, right? It's part of that perception. But when it's all the pieces are there, you really just, it puts together this professional forward-facing content that makes you say, wow, that's really good. Well, let's start by breaking down some of the different ingredients that are in this um make up a good or bad audio track because uh, you know there's kind of some key things that we're going to be throwing around here and then we'll break them down in different ways of using them so the the first thing that came to mind is just the room and environment that you're in the space that you're occupying because i think that a lot of creators like you're saying ray they could go out and buy buy a pretty decent mic right you can go spend a few hundred bucks get a mic that sounds great on casey neistat's channel and you sit down in your room, and for some reason, there's all this echo. And uh, that's something we'll talk about echo quite a bit because it's, a, I, th- I think, a very common issue, especially with people creating inside of their own homes and in uncontrolled environments where they haven't done anything to intentionally make the audio uh, uh, better in the space that they're in. And it's also one of my personal biggest struggles because I have cement ceilings and floors in my space. So I have, I have to do a lot of work to make it not sound terrible. But right now, just to also paint a picture, what sort of environments are you guys in right now? What is it that's creating a good audio space where you're recording at this moment? For me, my, mine is unfinished. So what you're saying and the level of importance here, for me, it is number one. There is a reason that all three of us, I know for a fact, own giant blankets that we will hang up in different environments because 
of these issues that you're talking about. For me, I DIY'd my own sound panels because those can be quite expensive. So if you want to invest your time, I have a video about how to do that. I think they work really well. But I have, you know, maybe half of my space. The irony is I turned my garage, I'm in California, and I have a small garage that I turned into my office slash studio. And the irony is when I got in here, it was like a dream the dream space to be able to have this space. And it was the absolutely the worst place I've ever recorded in. So between the reverb and I even had some like weird interference issues. So I had to really work at it. So between the DIY panels on the walls, there's a few more to go. I just got a new love seats, very soft in the corner and I filled it with, with stuff. Um, so these things, and we've talked about all these before, but that's, that's what I'm sitting in right now. Ideally I'd hang the blankets up and it would sound even better, but Almost nobody's going to notice a difference. I call it, it's pretty podcast neutral at this point. It sounds great. Good microphone, good environment. I'm pretty happy with the results. Could use a little more tweaking for video because as we'll get into the the mics and the maybe your distance to those mics are different, but I'm pretty happy with it so far. And how about you, Curtis? Uh, I'm in a basement. Uh, we have a spare bedroom in the basement that has been converted into my office slash studio um, slash edit suite. And um, it was actually pretty awful when we first got, got set up here. It's got a tile floor. Um, it's basically a square, which is also not so good. <laughs> um, eight foot ceilings and just like a like a pretty typical um, spare bedroom. And so, except minus the carpeting. Um, so the things that I've done here are, if if you could see this, you'd probably laugh at the moment. But I have some temporary things set up, but I also have permanently installed some sound, uh, some bass traps. So some sound panels to do some of the absorption. Um, I do have a carpet on the floor behind my my chair just to sort of mellow out some of the reflections. Some of the sound, I have two sound panels up on the ceiling. And then in addition to that, just for tonight, I have thrown a sound blanket down across most of the remaining tile floor that's exposed uh, just to help cut down on that reverb, um, which is often referred to as echo by many people. <laughs> yeah, I, I have... I'm very familiar with Echo. If you see some of my YouTube videos, you can actually notice when it's been really bad in the past because my main room is enormous um, and open. That's the problem. It's a studio space. It's completely open. There's no furniture. So what I'm doing right now is sitting inside of a little fortress of sound blankets that I've made. I just took C-stands, hung sound blankets on them, and then I uh, have some foam padding behind me as well. And it's still actually not ideal. Like, in this podcast, it's going to sound fine to everybody, but when I'm listening through my proper headphones, I can hear where my echo is punching out and, and still bouncing off of different parts of cement. But anyway, this all just goes to show what the, the biggest issues typically are, is that there isn't anything soft and absorbent nearby to stop those sounds from bouncing back at you and, yeah, exactly creating an echo. And this has been this has been my struggle for the last while, and I finally... I finally solved it with the simplest thing of sound blankets because they're relatively affordable. I mean, they're just kind of the price of regular blankets, but they're a bit more dense. Mine are black on one side and white on the other. And I'll include in the show notes uh, both a photo of my funny-looking setup and, and also a link to the, <laughs> the blankets that I use because if you just go on to BNH and look for them, uh, a challenge was that I could only find blue ones. And if you're shooting video, a blue blanket is going to bounce back nothing but blue light. So I don't know why all of them aren't neutral colors, but the ones I got are white and black. So Agreed. And then they become a really good uh, light modifier as well. So when you are shooting video, they can be negative fill or, or positive fill, depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And in a bigger fill source than you typically have, like bigger than most reflectors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, to go through a few more of the just ingredients before we get to the specifics, there's also obviously mics 
which there's a lot of mics to talk about. We'll go through them one by one. Preamps, which sometimes you may not think about at first as you get started with audio production because sometimes they're built in, to, especially on-camera mics. Or if you're putting a mic without a preamp into your camera, it will be amped by the camera. So for a while, you don't necessarily realize that you have to worry about this. It's something you deal with more as you move towards XLR mics. Beyond that, there's all sorts of settings, kind of details in terms of how you set your gain, which is effectively volume. It's the amount of signal being boosted by the microphone. The microphone has no inherent signal and you need something to turn it up. Uh, The formats that you record into, sample rates or any effects that you want to add in the chain. And then uh, towards the end, we'll talk about post-production a little bit um, because there's some very useful tools and tricks that I found lately that totally changed how my audio sounds. And I hope not everybody has to go through as much struggle as I did to get their audio sounding good. Oh, they all do. Everybody does. It's a, <laughs> it's a journey. It's a, and it's a worthwhile journey, I think. Well, we're, you're not alone out there. <laughs> uh, all right. So the, the first example, let's keep it as simple as possible, is just phones and social media. I shouldn't complain about bad Instagram stories because, you know what, they're supposed to be disposable. They're not meant to have a lot of work put into them. It's supposed to be quick to produce. But when I have my wife's like sitting across the room from me and she'll start watching other people's stories and all of a sudden they start blasting out at me at full volume and then it goes back to whispering. It, it drives me a little crazy that people aren't at all considering what the viewing experience is going to be. Um, so it's, it's not just Instagram stories. You can be vlogging. You can be doing whatever it is that you want to create on your phone. But it is worth considering what is the volume output going to be like And then what are the main things that you're going to hear? And uh, this is a pretty simple way to start because you don't have much control over this microphone. Um, So could could somebody tell me what kind of mic do we have in, say, an iPhone? Like, what is it picking up? I I think, well, yeah, my guess is it's an omnidirectional. So it it picks up sound from all sides. Um, I think the idea is that a lot of times in these phones, my guess is that they're doing a lot of internal real-time processing to to really kind of, you know, optimize the experience, whether that's taking a phone call um, or recording video. And so there's automatic gain control. There's um, there's probably algorithms to help try and reduce some of the ambient sound and noise um, and things of that nature. So there's a lot going on there that you really don't have control over. And that's one of the tricky things when you're working with a phone. But one of the things, of course, you can do to help the phone and help avoid situations where all that processing kind of gets tricks and ends up doing bad things that don't sound good is just keep that microphone as close as possible to the sound source. That will make all the difference in the world. That automatic processing, and for the most part, is generally good for most of the people, right? And so like Curtis is saying, if you're following like some simple best practice, which is really just being near enough to the microphone, um, all that stuff usually pretty much works in your favor. And I'm usually surprised with proper mic technique. That sounds funny when you're talking about social, but just understanding that you need to be near a microphone, um, it works. And don't cover it with your finger. This happens all the time. (laughs) And even more than that- All the time. You know, you can watch your story, like your 15 second clip before you hit send. Like that's not hard. So a little QA on your own stuff- because, I mean, how many times do you record a story? Sometimes, you know, I'll do three times because it's overexposed and that's a whole other situation. Or maybe I did. Maybe my pinky just rested over the audio. I see that all the time. And so it's really simple things. And sometimes it's not even technical as much as it's just sort of 
pay attention and use a couple of best practices. Yeah, just put a little effort in. And you'd be surprised how good the, the mics actually are in these phones lately. I mean, I've had times where in a pinch, I couldn't get a good mic close to the person and hide it out of frame. And uh, so, for example, I think it was for weddings is a good example. So I just grabbed my phone, t- started recording and hit it behind a vase. And all of a sudden I have a close mic that's getting much better audio than, say, a good shotgun mic is going to get from 10 feet away or something like that. So the, the mic's decent. Like, they're, they're really not bad, but it needs to be relatively close, as with any mic. I mean, this is a maybe a hard lesson to learn as well, is proximity is kind of everything. If you're if you're far away, it becomes very difficult to get good audio. With the best microphone. With the best mic, that's true. And I think really what's at play here is basically the inverse square law. So those that are, you know, into shooting video and photography understand the inverse square law and how light falls off very quickly. The same thing applies to microphones and sound. You've got to get it close if you really want to get that pure signal. And so I've actually found, I've tested a few of the external phone microphones. So uh, the, the one that I bought myself is the Rode Video Mic Me L, and that has a little lightning port plug so that I can stick it right into my iPhone. And it's interesting because it it does sound much better with headphones or on a computer or, or any half-decent speakers, but I do find when it's played back on an iPhone, on another phone, which is where most people are going to see it, it kind of it kind of sounds the same. Like a lot of people would not notice the difference. And there is way more frequency being captured. Like it's got a lot more bass in it. It is a much better recording, but it may never get heard. So I've found that I end up not using it that often just because I know it's not going to be heard very much and it's quite a bit more trouble for me. I think where it sticks out is when you are somewhere like a busy place, right? Whether you're a crowded market outside or you're on a conference floor, that's when I've noticed a microphone like a tiny shotgun on that. That's where it excels. That's when I notice, oh my gosh, the audio of the person is above yeah. the background noise. Um, otherwise, I don't notice a whole huge amount of difference. Like you said, it is smoother, but it's it's you picking up details that only like those of us that are drilled down in this stuff really notice for the common person. But you will notice it in a crowd. I feel like more than anything else. I agree. I think like a noisy restaurant is definitely will t- see a difference. And I think the reason for that is that something like the Rode Video Mic Me L is, uh, has a, is a more directional polar pattern. So it's a cardioid polar pattern as opposed to omnidirectional. So that's where it's going to kind of be able to handle some of that ambient noise a little bit better. Another really key thing about it is the direction that the mic is facing. And so if you're creating Instagram stories, or especially if you're doing it live, because if you're doing Instagram Live or, or using any live platform, you're often not able to change any settings at all. You just need to hit stream and then it does its thing. And if you point the mic away, sorry, if you point the camera away from you, so you're showing something in front of you, it automatically selects the mic on that side of the phone. So the huge advantage of putting an external one, uh, especially the Rode, I can turn it around, have it facing me, and now the phone starts using a mic that's a few inches away from my mouth while it's looking away so I can tell the people what they're seeing. And that can be really helpful. Absolutely agree. I think the another one, the Shure MV88, is another, like a competitor product out there. Um, that one's interesting. I've, I've done a review of that one. Um, what's interesting about that one is you can adjust the polar pattern. So for example, if you were having a conversation with two people, um, you can set it to be a kind of a stereo pickup. And 
if you wanted to be a more directional, do you just want to get out the sound from one side, you can tell it to do that. And it also does uh, mid-side recording, which is kind of an interesting alternative way to record stereo, especially when you're trying to capture the ambiance and you want to be able to control how much of that ambiance comes through versus the main sound source, presumably dialogue in this case, um, in post, where you can actually change it in post. So you can dial back some of the ambiance sound um, if it's a little bit too overwhelming. So it's an interesting little microphone. Yeah, the sure looks great as well. The one other case that I would say it's worth it to put these on is if you really care about doing, say, home videos. Like if recording videos for you, you want them to be really great and you're going to watch them on a TV later, but you don't necessarily, you know, you don't own a video camera, you don't care that much, you're not creating content to post publicly. I would like my home videos to sound way better. That's actually, it's funny because if it's for me personally, then I care a little more than if I'm just posting it to social because, uh, you know, in the long term, 10 years from now, I, I want to still have heard what's going on really clearly. So That's a great point. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, a new sponsor that I'm very excited to have on board because I've been using them for a long time now. If you watched any of my videos last year, a lot of it featured Epidemic music or sound effects, and they're a great resource for any audio you need to insert into your videos, podcasts, whatever it is you're creating. And music is actually something we forgot to talk about in this episode, but it's really important. I mean, you're just taking for granted that when you edit a video, yeah, you'll just have music. But it wasn't always so easy to find. When I was creating my very first YouTube videos, I would actually record my own music for it. That was the only way that I could have royalty-free, licensable music and get it into my video. Because you know what? You can't just use any song that you find out there. You need to have the rights to use it. Copyright is super important. I have a background in licensing stock photography, so... I know that it's really critical that you are using content that you're allowed to use and you're not going to get in trouble for it down the line. Just imagine you put out a video, it gets a million views, and the next week it's pulled down for copyright infringement. Or worse yet, another thing I've heard happening is somebody will use a copywritten song and then all of the royalties from their video they lose because they have to pay it to the creator of the copyrighted content that they used. This is something you have to be aware of. And if you go to Epidemic Sound, they will be able to take care of it for you. Everything there is royalty-free, so as long as you're paying for it, you're allowed to use it. You don't have to worry about getting in trouble. To sample their massive sound library and get a 30-day free trial, go to share.epidemicsound.com slash Stallman podcast. And that'll also let them know that you came from the show, which I would really appreciate because I appreciate our sponsors. It's them that make this all possible. And really, I think you should go check out that URL. Even if you don't think you need them today, just go see what they're all about, get a sense of it. And then when you have your next big audio or video project, you'll remember where to go back to to get all of your sound effects and music. So thanks again to Epidemic Sound for supporting the show. Let's move to where it's a a little more important. Gradually, we're going to get to more and more critical sound recordings. Uh, So the next situation is vlogging. The the one advantage of this is the mic is inherently pretty close to you. (laughs) So this is is helpful. Typically, you're holding a camera out either with your hand or it's on a tripod relatively close to your face. And it's funny because I think the accident of that format is a lot of what lets people create better audio without really thinking about it. They may not be aware of how important proximity is, but just because that's what vlogging is, they end up getting somewhat better audio. But uh, there's some like there's some really common problems with this, including uh, just background noises, uh, wind if you're outdoors, and terrible mics if you're using internal to the cameras. So I, I don't know, Curtis, have you gone through and tested many of the 
camera-mounted vlogging mics? You bet. Yeah, I've looked at a couple of them. The, the Rode Video Mic series is a really popular one, of course, and probably probably the most popular one. Uh, a new entry into that kind of space is the Deity, um, what's it called? The D3 Pro, I believe. So that's another kind of new competitor. There are some others out there as well. But though, the, the advantage of those, again, just like when we were talking about the phones, the advantage those microphones give is they're more directional than the camera's inbuilt microphones. Almost always the camera's inbuilt microphone is an omnidirectional uh, microphone, meaning it's going to pick up sound from all sides. And the, the advantage these gives you is that it will help, again, manage some of that ambient noise by using a more directional microphone that's aimed directly at the person who's on camera talking. Um, so you get that advantage there. And 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 vlogging is interesting too. Vlog, a lot of vlogging, of course, is consumed via mobile phones if someone's watching YouTube or whatever. But some people do actually still use their laptops and even uh, desktops to to watch some of that stuff. So you're getting to a space where they're going to be in a better listening position, at least theoretically. Some of them will be using decent headphones. Some of them will be using decent speakers. Um, so in that case, it, it might make a little bit more sense to to invest in one of those microphones so you can kind of ensure that the sound quality is a little bit better. So out of the most popular ones, did you have a clear favorite or do you have – Something you'd typically recommend? Uh, well, I do like that new D3 Pro from Deity. The the thing that I like about that one, and, and it, it's interesting because it, it works very much like the Rode VideoMic Pro. It can sit right on top of your camera. It has a shock mount so that if, you know, obviously when you're vlogging and you're walking around and that camera is shaking around, it's isolating the movement of the camera from the microphone. So the microphone's not picking up all that jostling. Um, of course, the Rode VideoMic Pro does that as well. But the nice thing about the D3 Pro is that it's also a mic that someone can grow into. So, for example, if they get a little bit more serious about their production value and they're maybe for their vlog one week they're going to do an interview with somebody, they can actually take that D3 Pro off the camera and it's all set up to actually boom on a boom pole um, just out of frame for an, a proper interview. So it's a, it's kind of a mic that people can grow into and kind of step up their game even further in the future if they if they choose to go that way. Yeah, I have that deity on the way, actually. I kind of hoped I'd have it for today because uh, I think at the end of the episode, I'll actually just include a few samples of some of the mics I have laying around just to give you a sense of how different things can potentially sound. Um, but I'm really excited about what deity is doing. They seem like a really cool up-and-comer. What do you use, Ray? For me, I still have the Rode Video Mic Pro, the, the first one, the original I guess it is the original, right? Because there's the Pro Plus, and then there's the one before it. Terrible naming. It's all terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what What is interesting to me about this form factor, this this mic category, is less the mic and more of the cameras and the camera manufacturers. So I have that original Rode Video Mic Pro because the Canon DSLRs back in the T2, well, no, I had to get a 60D to get a mic input, but um, that's it. Your camera has to have a mic input too, but that's another subject. But they were notoriously bad. The preamps, the way that the camera boosted the audio up to a, a usable level created a lot of noise. And so Rode came out with this mic that gave you a preamp inside of it and it would boost it an extra 20 dB, which lets you drop down the cameras you basically took the camera out of the equation almost and bypassed their preamp and you'd get great sounding audio and i still i still have that mic i still use it all the time but then i went to sony and the preamps were just great i didn't even need that plus 20 db boost anymore so i'm excited that camera camera manufacturers have also realized that i that i think vlogs actually today the a6400 came out so it's, i think it's going to be the new biggest best vlogging camera with the flip screen but they have improved 
um, as well. And so there are so many little form factor, the tiny form factor of these microphones that are available that um, you have a lot of options in all your price categories. But I do still love the Video Mic Pro. Well, because it's so popular, I want to mention the Rode Video Micro for a second. It's another one that I've got. Actually, in fact, I have it in front of me right now. It's a really great form factor, super small. It doesn't require any power, which is really appealing about it. So there's no batteries to manage. But I have found that you you really do notice a drop in audio quality from the... Well, any of the other ones, really, from the Mic Pro, Mic Pro Plus, uh, from the samples of the DD that I've heard. And I also have some tests of the Shure SM, what is it? No, sorry, Shure VP83, which is similar format. And uh, I didn't love that audio either. But I, I do find that that Rode Video Micro, you are making some compromises for that smaller form factor and giving up the batteries, uh, a little, little less bass response and definitely a little more noise as well. So I don't end up using it very often because of that, but it is so affordable that it's hard not to recommend people start there because you don't need to spend the money of a VideoMic Pro or a VMic D3 Pro to get started. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think the very specific category that we're talking about, vlogging, is very interesting. A, I like the format. And for me, I like to be as slim and trim as possible. I mean, you see these ridiculous setups that, you know, vlogging is inherently a, you get out in the world and you're, you're showing your life and you got to like put it in your bag and take it out and travel with it. Um, if you know, that's your kind of vlog, but you know, I like something that's very stripped down and that road video micro for me sometimes was worth the compromise. It wasn't that different. Again, it's a, it's sort of a difference we're going to notice, but your audio is definitely going to improve over using the built-in mic of like the camera itself so it's not i like it i like not having to have to worry about batteries but it also comes with a hefty windscreen um yeah like a big you know, what do you call it, a dead cat but this is more like a dead um mouse round like a dead mouse yeah yeah <laughs> i'm trying to think of something round um but just vlogging itself if you are the vlogger that is basically outside of your house it it sort of helps because we talk about background noise being an issue, but a lot of issues get buried in the background noise. So I find that, you know, just adding an external mic as opposed to using an internal mic is a huge step up because vlogs for me are just easier to get better audio. Like you said, you're close. And usually if you are, if that mic, again, these little shotgun mics we're talking about, it's directional, it's focused on you. Um, you're getting less of that background and you don't hear things like hiss necessarily um, or other sounds that might be an issue or some of that low end that you might want that could create a warmer sound, say a podcast, which we'll get into. But I think vlogging, the barrier to making your audio better is pretty simple. And it starts with a lot of these little shotgun type attached microphones. I think the priority becomes clarity. As long as you can hear the person, you know what they're saying. And it's not just, you're not being distracted by things like wind. Wind's a very common one. That's that's all you really need because, again, the context of seeing where they are and what they're doing can make it a lot more forgiving to have a bit more background noise. I agree. I was just going to underscore the same thing and talk a little bit about wind. I think that is one of the enemies. That, that There is no – when wind blows across a microphone capsule and you get that distorted, crackling, really unpleasant sound, that – that I've never seen that actually add to a production. <laughs> so that is where those external mics really give you like a big advantage. Even if you don't hear a big difference when it's not windy, 
if you have that that furry cover to put on in those circumstances when it is, you've just saved your audience's ears and you've made the focus on your story uh, come you know stay in the forefront as opposed to getting this distraction from from the wind that just sounds awful. Oh, but Curtis, all you do is flip the little wind filter switch inside your <laughs> menu and it's all gone. Yeah, that's all it takes. <laughs> People often wonder what that is and it's just a low cut. It's not magic. It's not magic and it doesn't always work and it it does sacrifice. So if you do have an aggressive one, then you're going to sound like Mickey Mouse too. You're, you're going to lose all that bass response. So it's a, it's a trade-off. But yeah, no, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. <laughs> Even if you decide to use a completely stripped down camera as well and you're using the internal mics, it can really be worth it to put little, they have these little sticker versions of the mm -hmm. dead cats or I don't know what you described at that point because it's so small. It just goes over top of it, but that can also make a big difference. And I absolutely think if you do nothing else, you, you can get away with the internal mics. That can be completely fine. But if you're going to be outside, you should do something to protect it from the wind. I think we should call those a dead louse. Oh, I like that. Excellence. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into slightly higher quality. So once you move indoors, all of a sudden you've removed a lot of those distracting noises in the background that are going to cover up things like a noise floor or echo or just all of the problems that you can run into start to be emphasized if you are creating a more in-studio type recording. And whether that's a home studio or real studio, all of a sudden, the pressure is on a little bit more to have really beautiful sounding voice. And also, the, the way that we're discussing all of this audio is dialogue specifically. Um, there's a lot of different elements of sound engineering, and all of the things we're going over today relate to recording the human voice, which is, it's funny because it's a really like, it's a narrow field. And it's what both of you guys focus entirely on. Like you can build a whole career about just recording one thing in the whole world, but our ears are so precisely tuned to it that we can really hear when it is off. That's the beauty of the time we're in, is that any information I've ever sought out about recording audio, everything you find, it's about music, right? Or or even um, maybe voiceover, which is a little different. You'll find some of that stuff. But these days... YouTubers like Curtis. I mean, it's out there. So many more people are putting an emphasis on it that there's a ton of information than when I started, you know, 14 years ago, um, where, you know, if it was about a mixer, I had to figure out, well, what do I need for dialogue, not music? You know, it feels like every piece of gear I am sort of taking from music and adjusting it to dialogue. So yeah, it's a good time if you want to learn about dialogue, because um, it is a specific, very specific thing. And, and a lot of questions that I have had over the years couldn't be answered by someone who produces music. Yeah, they use the term vocals and and vocals are even, even that's a kind of a different thing too. You know, especially when it comes to microphone recommendations, you'd hear a lot of recommendations about the type of microphones that a music producer would want for vocals. Um, and it may not be the exact same we would want for spoken word dialogue necessarily. They're they're looking for all this. I mean, we we all want some nuance and things of that nature. But sometimes we don't want as much as some of that nuance we don't want. You know, some of that sibilance we don't want. Some of the mouth clicks and such we don't want necessarily. So there's it's an it's an interesting um, world where there's kind of slightly differing needs potentially. Well, even the conversation between condenser versus dynamic, which I feel really kind of came on the scene widely online. When podcasting came out, it's not like a lot of people were telling you how to produce radio. I mean, it wasn't really a big thing, but podcasts exist online and you have podcasters. We both all have explained the studio space we're in. And, you know, so you've got a different issue, whereas a voiceover artist might need that wider frequency response um, mm -hmm. to catch that really deep, full 
voiceover, a podcaster might want to restrict some of those frequencies. So even the conversation around the type of transducer, the way it picks up is, is gotten, I think has changed for uh, our podcasting has changed that. That's a great point. Sometimes it reminds me of the way that video gear, especially video cards are a good example. They only really exist for gamers. Gamers create that whole industry. Right. But then in the background, there's visual effects artists and video editors and scientists doing like uh, running a lot of different equations work best through a GPU because it's really good at parallel processing. All these things just piggyback on the big gaming industry. And it's kind of like that was like music is the behemoth that keeps the audio industry running. And then we're just picking off little pieces of it to do our, our dialogue. <laughs> it's changing though. I mean, look at even, even uh, sound devices coming down into the consumer market with the mix pre excellent product. Totally. I think that, I think that independent producers are driving that type of innovation, which I just, I'm loving. Well, let's get to the in the studio, what you should be doing. And uh, this is the section where we're solving my problems because my studio st- still sounds terrible, even <laughs> though I have sound blankets to help, but uh, it could always get better. First of all, how do you choose between a shotgun and, or I should say, a boom mic and a lav mic? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. And and to be honest, as a location sound mixer, I constantly use both of them. And then I I leave myself that option in post. But I think if you're going to be in a studio where you understand the space, you have control over the space, um, that's where I think you can, you can, you're in a position where you can make that choice and move toward one or the other. And in in most cases, my sense is that it's a lot easier to get a boom mic to sound natural than it is to get a lavalier microphone to sound natural, especially if it has to be hidden. If you're, if you're insistent that the microphone cannot be shown it can't be seen by the audience. Um, you're going to have a much easier go of things, I think, with a boom microphone. And really, what are you doing? Are you going to move? Right? Are you moving around? Um, what are your needs? If you can, if you're going to sit stationary in front of the camera, you can boom over your head that a microphone that's going to be in a stationary position and and be fine. I think that a boom microphone is going to produce most of the times. It has a, a tends to have like a wider frequency range and it, it sounds like Curtis said more natural. It just sounds better. But again, that's to people who are more of an audiophile that's really going to notice that difference. Um, but being wireless from the camera, if I'm going to move around and do some type of tutorial, or I'm just going to show you a setup in my studio, like setting up my lights, a lab is really going to work better for me. I mean, Curtis is where he says he uses both. I mean, that's ideal redundancy in audio production, man, if you can do that for yourself, you're going to love it. I mean, we're recording right now. I, we're all recording our own audio. Uh, Tyler, you're recording via Skype. We have a bunch of redundancy built in right now. Oh, yeah. And being able to choose your option is always going to win. I mean, I'm recording one file that is like 8 dB underneath my other file. I mean, the protection just doesn't stop. You'll learn that in audio. But Wow, thanks, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always, I'm just scared. That's all it is. It's, I think the further you go along, you'll have instances where you're like, wow, I really wish I had done that. But um yeah, I mean, just being able to have, if you can do both, that's fantastic. But choosing one is really going to go with what does your setup need? And I find in a tough setup, like a reverberant setup that maybe you have, I find that a lav, I can get a little bit better results. So again, where you're recording and what are you what are you doing on that recording is probably going to play a huge role in which type of mic you choose. Couldn't agree more. I, I would I would add just one thing, and that is that the challenge with lavalier microphones is that you also run you pick up the risk of um, when your talent's moving, whether that's you or, or someone you're recording, um, you run the risk of picking up clothing rustle and things of that nature. So 
Um, that's and, that, and that's something that definitely obviously an audio engineer is going to notice. But I think even non-audio audiences will pick up on that as well. And it'll become a, a little bit obvious that, hey, you know, that person's wearing a microphone and that kind of might distract me from from what's happening a little bit. Just it, it's not something that can't be overcome. It's, um, you know, it's just something you may have to practice a little bit more with to to find ways to mount that microphone so it doesn't pick up a bunch of clothing rustle and kind of distract from the story. Yeah, and Curtis's channel, you, I mean, Curtis hides a lot of labs. So for me, I just wear it like on my shirt, right? So it, again, it depends. You know, Curtis is saying, is it is it a video where the microphone needs to be hidden, right? Is the talent, is the corporate client, whoever, do they absolutely don't want to see a microphone? I'm on YouTube, don't care. If you see a lab, it's actually part of my channel. People want to see the gear. So it works out in that situation. So yeah, it really just, yeah, a lab can cause all kinds of issues. I For me, Try both. I mean, seriously, if you can get your hands on both, a friend you know probably has one or the other, try them both. I really never know what's going to work in my space until I'm able to try them. I mean, this goes with microphones too. I have the SM7B right now. Tyler, you want the SM7B. We're going to sound different on the same microphone. So I can't really tell you if it's the mic for you until you try it. Actually, that's a fun thing to ask right now. What, what are you guys all using? So, I mean, you just told us what you're on right now, Ray. Curtis, what mic are you on right now? I am on an AKG uh, C414 XLS. It's a condenser microphone, large diameter. Gesundheit. I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one is actually one that's very common in the music world. Um, it's a it's commonly used for vocal mics. And in fact, the first time I encountered it was with my, uh, I went up to do a recording session with my brother, who is a musician, and he uses it on a lot of the vocal recordings for music. But it actually, it, I find that it, it it works pretty nicely with some voices, so. And so I, I think an important question is why? Like you want to know why the heck is Curtis? And he he kind of alluded to some of those reasons, but I know Curtis is very conscious of his own sibilance. So I'm assuming that this mic does a great job on his sibilance. Well, we'll see when Tyler <laughs> publishes. We'll see what happens. Um, there, there, that is one thing. I think this one is, is supposed to be a bit more neutral. Um, also, I've started doing some voiceover work, and that's where this microphone became pretty important for, for my work. Hmm. Um, so that's that's why I've got it. Back to the boom and laugh thing, one other thing I wanted to mention is that there can be a pretty significant difference uh, in audio as you you move your head in smaller ways than you think. You can really create a distracting volume difference. And, you know, obviously I can do it right now just by moving my head to the side of this directional uh, high PR 40 But in um, a studio place as well, I mean, just if you are, say, picking up things off the desk and the things are off to your right and you keep turning to the right as you come back to, to speak to camera, that difference can be really substantial with a uh, any kind of boomed mic. And also we should clarify, booming is the way that you put the mic in. It's not a kind of mic. So you could boom in a cardioid mic or a shotgun mic or many different kinds. Um, but uh, it's it's a consideration. But for, for me, I like to I like to always hide my mic. I don't like seeing a lav in the shot. And I've run into the fabric rustle so many times that, especially if you're an independent, meaning one man producer, uh, one man or woman producer, uh, you suddenly are very aware of not being able to monitor the whole time. So even once you've tested a whole bunch and you think you've got it all figured out, then you go record a take, come back and listen to it. And you realize there was some added rustle the whole time. It's, very frustrating. So if you're by yourself and nobody can monitor, I would suggest a lot of the time either have an exposed lav that has no chance of hearing fabric or uh, boom something in. 
I agree. And also get into the habit of reviewing your material before you pack all your gear away. You might have to do another take. Yeah, I've yeah, I've made that mistake before too. <laughs> I actually, I just had that issue just doing some vlogging the other day. I was using the uh, aforementioned Sure, I keep forgetting the name, VP83, and it has a plus 20 signal boost. And I didn't realize while I was recording that for some reason, that's actually too loud when my Sony a7 III is turned all the way down. I can't turn it down enough for the signal to be uh, the right level at arm's length. So I kind of just set it the way that I'm used to setting my road, and it was clipping the whole time. So I'm going oh, wow. to be doing, yeah, I have to do a lot of repair work on this Fox. I need to use it. It's all I got. Um, and I just, I didn't have head, I didn't review it with headphones. I only listened back on the camera. I'm like, oh, it captured it. it it's fine. The, I didn't notice any issue when I was testing. So I just kind of too quickly assumed it worked out. But you can never be too careful. And Curtis, could you maybe for us explain what what we should be worried about with clipping? Like, What is the problem and why can't I just fix it in post easily? Great question. I think that what clipping is basically in digital recording, audio recording, um, once the audio signal gets to a certain amplitude or loudness, um, there's nowhere else for it to go. It, it stops at zero dB. And so what happens is if your signal is coming in a lot hotter than that, a lot more amplified than that, um, it, it just clips. And that sounds basically like distortion. It sounds uh, crackly and it sounds like your your eardrums are about to explode. It's not a good sound. <laughs> um, and the problem is, is that you can not actually get that back. That's basically lost information as you're recording. And so there's not a simple way in post to bring that back. Now, technically, there are some ways you can try and use very sophisticated modeling to bring some of that back, but um, it only works if it's relatively minor. And that's even with really expensive tools. So in those cases, you really need to be monitoring your audio while you're recording if in as much as possible to make sure that you're not clipping. And if you hear someone refer to it as peaking, it's what they mean. It might not necessarily be the best way to describe it. Clipping, probably a bit more accurate term, but people use them interchangeably. And so yeah. the way that I'll be doing the repair here is that it, it isn't too bad for one thing. So it it almost could pass, but there is it is clearly slightly distorted. Either of you would absolutely notice. But um, I think it's there's little enough of it that my favorite repair app, Isotope RX6, I think I'm on 6, there is 7 out now, uh, has a really powerful clipping fixer, uh, band-aid tool. I don't know what it's doing <laughs> or how it does it, but it, it does a really remarkable job of bringing down that distorted top end. And I've never heard anything else that did it well enough that I would use it, but um, I'm pretty optimistic that in in this case, it's not bad enough that I can't save the files. Fortunately, so it's the the client won't notice tool. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you will, and you'll freak out. But it's probably not enough that the the client will still be happy. Hopefully, yeah. And, and all through this, I do want to say I very heavily recommend that very expensive plugin. Uh, every year around Black Friday. The whole RX6 or RX7 package goes on sale. So next time it's on sale, because it's incredibly expensive, go pick it up. No. Because there is some part of it that's going to save your butt a few different elements, times. Elements, elements. I'm telling there you, man, you go. go for the elements. And again, with the sales a couple of times a year, I always tweet them out. I, I think I got it like 99 cents one year. It was something ridiculous. Wow. But the elements goes on sale for... Gosh, I don't know. It goes on sale really cheap, but even the elements alone yeah, is thirty bucks. I think is pretty common. Yeah, it's like ninety nine bucks, and 
it's, I mean, we might discuss it later, but for me, that RX pack, even just the elements, and I have upgraded since, um, and I didn't really notice a huge change in the upgrade, but for me, it's become as essential as, you know, having um, a windscreen or, you know, making sure you're using good mic technique. That that pack has really changed things. And I think I have in my notes that sometimes, because you know, I've been doing this for a long time independently and as a hobbyist or enthusiast. Actually, I think uh, Curtis says enthusiast. I like that that term. But um, sometimes money does actually make the difference. And this is one of the, mm-hmm. the few cases where I notice a difference when I spent a little bit of money. Especially, especially in the noise removal. Uh, a lot of people use noise removal in... Uh, well, what are the other apps? Uh, Adobe Audition, for example, has a built-in and people, I think, lean on it pretty heavily. But when, if you just do an A-B test, just compare before and after and really listen to it, you can hear a lot is a lot is removed. So your voice sounds worse and it leaves a lot of noise uh, during your speaking. So in the silence, it's the noise can be completely filtered out. But while you're speaking, it's still very present and isotope does it's just a completely other level of how smoothly it's pulling out all the noise during the speaking and during the silence uh, I, I absolutely couldn't go back they use fairy dust it's clear <laughs> which is why it's so expensive but uh let's let's circle back around to that a little bit at the end for some post-production talk uh and then another element of this is whether you're going to be recording internally to your camera or syncing in post re- recording to an external i try to as often as possible record into my camera because of the simplicity when it's just me i don't want to be spending any more time than i need to managing other files. If you're working with a team or you're, you know, you're working on like a, a independent film of some kind, typically it, it probably will be recorded externally, especially if somebody's managing that on their own. But uh, do you, Curtis, do you find a big difference in quality where it was recorded in the end? It depends on what you're doing. I think if you're, if you're vlogging, if you're, um, you know, posting videos to YouTube that the, 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 increased quality that you're going to get is is going to be negligible depending on what your audience is you know if if you're just uh, i i guess my my take in that case is it i i never try to encourage people to you know spend twenty thousand dollars on studio audio gear to produce a youtube channel that is about you know tech reviews or you know something else that isn't necessarily related to audio so or at least not directly in most cases so I think it's perfectly legitimate to go straight into your camera. Now, uh, that being said, I think there are some things you can do to improve the quality of what's going into your camera. And that's where I think a pretty good, you know, a good microphone or a good microphone and an an audio adapter or um, even like some of the uh, recorders slash mixers that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Some of those can make a big difference as well. And I think I think you'll see that on on some of the big um, tech review channels on YouTube, for example, most of those guys at this point are using the sound devices mix pre or a zoom f series recorder and they may still be going into their camera through that but um, they're using that to do the heavy lifting of of amplifying that audio and then sending that really nice clean signal into the camera from there and a really important part of that that i underrated when i first bought my my previous audio device what do you call it a uh, it was the tascam dr70d and mm-hmm. I'd heard the samples. It sounds pretty great. It has decent preamps. You know, every, everything is pretty solid about it. I like it. But what I didn't realize is that it doesn't have an especially clean out. So I was trying to send, I'm not looking at it now, so I forget the, all of the ports, but I think it's that I was sending it out of the headphone, which is the only 
output it has. And I was sending that to the camera and had really, really severe noise being added by the headphone preamps. So even if you're getting a clean signal into your recorder, make sure that that's being passed along to your camera because you could be monitoring it, listening to, say, the Tascam, but meanwhile your Sony is recording all this extra noise that you didn't notice. The headphone preamp always seems to get cheated in every device, it seems like. I mean, when you move up to something really nice like a mix pre, they give it the respect it needs. But I think Curtis would know, like this headphone pre. And that's not a thing you always, you definitely don't think of that up front. And then it's really critical for me. Yeah, it's critical for me because in a monitoring my audio situation, um, I need to know what I'm getting. And if it's creating noise... If it's not being accurate to what I'm actually recording, um, it's a problem. I mean, even in the Zoom F8, which is a, uh, I don't know, if I call it Pro, Curtis would probably not want me to call it Pro. No, no, no. It's close. Pros use it. But the first version, and I took that on tour with me, and it has a noisy headphone preamp. And they've they've fixed it since. They've come out. Is it the F8N? Did they put an air? What is it called, Curtis? Yep, correct. F8N. So they fixed it, I believe. Curtis would know it's definitely on his channel. And uh, but I was on tour, and I just had to know. I mean, this is this comes down to just knowing your gear really well um, at the same time, and that comes with use. But I had to know. Hey, I know the noise that I'm getting right now is coming from um, the headphone amp and not the audio I'm recording. So you know, all these little elements—they're definitely important to know. I think again, you just have to work with your gear a lot. So to wrap up the studio conversation, what can we recommend? What are some good packages or options? Uh, I'll start by saying that a lot of my videos last year were done using the Rode VideoMic Pro Plus uh, boomed. So it's a little shotgun mic, and I basically treated it as a standalone one, and I would boom it in over myself in studio just because it was so simple. I didn't need to go grab extra XLR cables or anything. I would just have an extension just to extend the one-eighth inch jack uh, to reach my camera. So that probably introduced some noise. It um, probably doesn't have the best possible audio, but it was so simple that that's what I was doing. And it usually came out fine, uh, except that it would pick up quite a lot of echo. Curtis, do you, have you Notice that, so the Rode has a super long extension, right, that you can use with these 3.5 millimeter lav mics and stuff. Have you noticed an audio degradation when used and having to do a long run like that? I've never used it. Not generally, no. And and actually, that's an interesting thing. This is where you get into a, an interesting trade-off because when you get that microphone closer, the improvement in the overall timbre of the sound you're recording is is so, it's impressive. You're, you're, you're managing all of that room on, well, not all of it, Obviously, as Tyler said, he's still getting plenty of reverb in his space. But getting the microphone close is going to make a huge difference in terms of what sound is making it into the microphone and its preamplifier. And I haven't found a ton of extra like self-noise or, you know, interference from electromagnetic fields or anything like that generally cause a big problem. Now, now if you run your cable right along a a power cord or something like that, yeah, there's a good chance you will. But I actually advocate that approach. I think it's a really great way for someone who's producing for YouTube or, you know, uh, anything along those lines. That's a relatively affordable way to get a really good setup. Now, obviously, as Tyler mentions, you're still going to have to be careful about your room. You're going to have to treat your room in some way or choose a space that's going to to work well. But that's going to help you a lot, get a lot closer to that. I think it's definitely worth it. Now, that cable, I think also that Rode sells, the VC1, if I'm, if, if I'm, got that right is a it's not terribly long i think it's a maybe a 
uh, I don't know, three or four meters. It's not a super long cable, so yeah, you're not going to get a 10 lot. Feet. 10 feet. Okay, so it's it's not even that. So it's, it's relatively short, so you're not going to get a ton of distance, but it will give you enough space that you can, you know, sit down in front of your camera, do a talking headshot, head and shoulders type of thing, and still boom the mic above you. And I think that's that's a pretty good approach. Again, noting that you're you're still going to have to be careful about your room. Well, I did use a no-name cable that I found in my drawer. I'm not. I don't remember where it came from. Uh, it is not the road one, but it. it I, th- <laughs> I think it worked. I haven't noticed any issues with it, thankfully. That actually. That's actually something worth mentioning here too. Um, there are cases, and, and and I think Ray mentioned this earlier when we were talking about isotope, but. There are cases where you may not want to cheap out quite so much when it comes to certain little things. Cables is probably one of them. When it comes to audio, cables can make a big difference. And and not only just in terms of rejecting potential interference, but also just durability too, because those cables get beat up pretty well. You know, if you take them on location and things of that nature, they get ground into the dirt and the floor and, and things of that nature. And um, usually spending a little bit more, like for example, on the road cables, um, I found that one to be pretty reliable for me as, as an example. And yeah, it's $20 as opposed to $299, but it's probably worth the extra cost there. And you mentioned earlier that also that new uh, Deity uh, D3 Pro, and there's also a D3 that doesn't have the preamp inside, but that'd be even slightly more optimized for this kind of mounting. It'd be fantastic for in-studio. So uh, I hope to be testing that soon and using it soon. Um, but l- let's also go over some of the, if you want to rig it out a little bit more. Um, I recently um, added a Mix Pre 3 to my audio chain. So I'm going to be using that a bit more in the coming year so that I can use XLR mics and, and probably have something a little more permanently set up as my studio mic. And then my uh, shotgun mic mounted to the camera will be more for on the road. What are some of the best mic choices for external shotguns or super cardioids or cardioids? Or, oh man, I'm, I just got us too much deeper. What mic should I choose? <laughs> if you're going to choose a shotgun microphone, the 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 kind of quintessential or the classic is the is the Sennheiser MKH416. Um, there are tons of people that has been used in location sound mixing for decades. Um, it's an incredibly popular mic. Sennheiser actually tried to they they actually redesigned. Um, a much smaller version of that microphone called the uh, MKH-8060. And after they introduced that, and it was voiced specifically for for digital recording, whereas the 416 was originally designed in the analog recording days, um, people uh, in the marketplace got upset that their 416 was no longer available. So Sennheiser had to reintroduce it. <laughs> and it has a really, it's a classic I think sound. That's so interesting that it's still, it has this momentum. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces of gear we can talk about, especially microphones that have this momentum of being famous for something. People mm-hmm. learn to trust it and that's what they always want to go to. And yeah, I, I saw you post about that and the little anecdote I think is really interesting. Um, even though it, you know, may not be perfect for today. And then again, you know, Deity has tried to emulate it with their S-Mic 2. I haven't tested it yet. I watched your tests, Curtis, but um, that's probably the next thing I'll be using in my next few videos. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great mic as well. Now, one thing that's important to keep in mind that some people don't understand, a, lot of, a question I'll get a lot, and I know, Ray, you've gotten this question a ton too, is which mic should I get? What's the best mic for... $600? What's the best mic for $200? And unfortunately, the answer is it. there isn't one that's best. Um, it really kind of partly depends on your voice as well, because um, when we were talking about which microphones we're using right now, you know, a Shure SM7B is a fantastic microphone. An Electrovoice RE20, which is the equivalent from a company called Electrovoice, is also a fantastic microphone. One of them 
tends to work a little bit better with sibilant voices than the other one. And so it really depends on the timbre of your voice and kind of the, you know, the overall frequency output that your voice produces as to which one's going to work best with your voice. So I know that's a hard thing to tell people because they're like, well, that doesn't help. Now I don't know which mic to buy even more. Um, but <laughs> but it's important to remember, don't if, if you're gonna if you're gonna watch reviews online, and this is coming from a person that does audio gear reviews. It's important to listen to to multiple samples of a particular microphone so you can get a, a, a variety of different voices and see how they each sound. So, for example, the Deity S-Mic 2 is actually, I think, a very good shotgun microphone. It's about a $350 microphone. Um, I think it works well on a lot of voices. It's not the favorite. It's not my favorite microphone for my particular voice. I have a little bit of a some sort of tenory overtones that don't mix well with it. Um, does that make it a bad mic? Absolutely not. It's actually a fantastic mic for most other voices. So that's that's one of the challenges here is that we don't, most of us have a place we can go to locally to try out these different microphones, unfortunately. But at the very least, when you're shopping for a microphone, try to listen to multiple samples recorded on that microphone so you can get a variety of different voices to see how they sound. Or I find another example that for for my voice when I'm listening to it is... A little bit of the opposite. There is some sibilance that can be a problem sometimes, but my voice can want to become a little too muffled. Like, not that it's extremely bassy, but there isn't always a lot of clarity on the top of it. And I do look for a bit of emphasis on that to make sure that it's Mm -hmm. still easy to understand what I'm saying and I don't drop too far into this muddy mid-low range that uh, you really, you can't hear out of a lot of speakers. That's a great point. And and I think, so for example, you have what we might describe as a, a somewhat dark voice where you don't have a lot of that high-end kind of sizzly and, and tingly stuff going on. Um, you have a little bit more of the low register going on. And that's that's where, for example, a Sennheiser MKH 416 actually may be a really good fit because that actually does tend to emphasize some of those higher frequencies. And Ray, I, I, I'm sure you've encountered these types of questions too, and I'm, I'm curious what your advice is for people. Well, for me, a lot of times I will ask the person, what are you doing with the microphone? Because like what you mentioned, it is hard to get your voice through a microphone. There's not a lot of places you can go unless you're like in New York and you can go to B&H or near an Adorama or something and try them out. Sometimes you can order them and then send them back. But sometimes people don't want their your spit all over their microphone and want it returned, right? <laughs> well, wait, so, can I interrupt you for a sec? I want to encourage everybody, don't be afraid to order a mic and send it back. I'm sure Amazon and B&H doesn't want me to say that. But don't feel obligated to keep a $500 microphone if you go out and say buy an SM7B and it is not right for you. Don't feel like you need to keep it because I I think it, it can be so valuable to be able to test these things. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I mentioned it earlier, you do have to try. I mean, the difference between a lav or a shotgun or, you know, something else is the difference of your space. You don't know until you try it. So get the microphone, you know, maybe invest. And then if it's not working for you, you know, eBay is a great thing too. The best thing about, I always almost look at a lot of the gear I buy is it's almost a rental because, well, I don't ever sell anything. I tell myself that. That's how I convince myself that it's okay to buy that other piece of gear. But gear does sell well, right? If for some reason um, you you stopped doing this and you, and you have this nice microphone. But, you know, evidenced by what you've just heard here, I often say, we're the worst people to work on our audio because no one it <laughs> tends to care for their own voice, at least at first, right? When you first hear yourself come back, you're like, that's how I sound? Because we hear ourselves differently, right? That uh, physiology, but- oh, Such a good point. We're terrible. And and we never um, sort of let ourselves have a break and we're constantly trying to fix it. And ultimately we get better audio, but you know, ask a friend, ask 
ask it other opinions because I work on other people's audio all the time and I'm like, this is, it's fantastic. You sound great. I don't even, I don't get the thing you're hearing. Um, so you have to, uh, you have to realize that you're hearing yourself differently. Uh, you probably have to give yourself a little bit of a break, um, but also always try to improve. But again, when people ask me this question, you know, Tyler, you get all the time. What's the best camera? What's the best lens? And the answer is <laughs> never this one. <laughs> it's never this one. And so I think when you do this enough online, the way Curtis and Tyler and, and myself do, we know sort of all the things they're really asking. And sometimes it helps to just say, hey, how are you going to use it? And then give them a choice. Um, because they're probably not going to hear the subtleties. And we know you're getting something you're getting something good. We're not going to recommend like a bad option. And I think the beauty today is there's not a lot of really bad options. I don't find um, a lot too much bad gear. Now, I delete all the emails that I get <laughs> asking me to review what is obvious junk. Outside of that, a lot of gear is just fantastic these days. Well, let's try to burn through some quick recommendations here um, just for in-studio stuff. Uh, what, what I wrote down for us here are some things that are generally good. So we have the Sennheiser MKH416, which is uh, also known as the MKBHD microphone lately for YouTubers out there. Um, I, I also have a Rode NTG1. Uh, the NTG2 is also out there that I think you've talked about, Ray, um, which I don't I don't love it a, a lot. I think you guys, you've got, you guys have both talked about it and said more positive things than me. I've been frustrated by it lately, but it's a, an affordable, decent option. It used to be a really bad option because the H4n used to be a popular option. When you paired the two, uh, they were horrible, and it was ter- ter- terrible noise. And those are the two I bought together. <laughs> that would be an unhappy result. But um, the Audio-Technica AT4053B is sort of my hidden gem, and that's what I have. And Curtis, it, it usually wins. I don't know if it wins, but it always makes the top of Curtis's test. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, Curtis, why do you love that microphone? This is this is a relative thing, of course, but it's reasonably priced for for what it is. So it's a for those that aren't familiar with this microphone, it's a it's a hypercardioid, so it's a small diaphragm microphone. They often call them pencil condenser microphones. They're often used in music recording, but for instruments. Um, but this one is just really good for voice. It works with so many people's voices. It, it just sounds fantastic. And I've compared it up to much more expensive my, microphones that cost at least twice as much in blind comparisons and have people vote. And, you know, it depends on the voice that's speaking into it, but it just sounds really, really nice on most voices. And it's about 700 bucks, I think. Is that right, Ray? 600 on B&H. Okay. I'm looking at it right now. And I think that's about what I paid for it. I might have caught a sale, but it's not the type of thing that goes on sale very much. And it says on B&H Dialogue, boom pole microphone. And so the reason I got into this microphone is because everyone, you know, you see shotgun mics as boom mics, which is sort of like the, that term is like a Kleenex of like tissue. Like people say boom mic, they mean shotgun mic a lot of times, but there is, there can be a difference between using a shotgun microphone indoors, um, that could create an issue. I don't see it most of the time. Curtis would know a lot more about that. Um, but this microphone, I was curious because if you watch any kind of professional production or you watch TV shows, you notice the mic that's on that boom pole is a lot smaller. And and I was curious, what's going on? Because none of those look like shotgun mics to me, the typical long tube microphone. And turns out they're using these hypercardioid um, style type microphones that are um, shorter. They don't have the long rejection tube that can cause some of those issues. So that's how I got to the AT4053B. But for me, and every time I see it in a test on Curtis's channel is it's always 
almost always the cleanest microphone. So I'm always, I'm obsessed with hiss and noise and I don't want that to be there. And this one, besides sounding amazing, it's just always the cleanest. Anybody listening right now, I recommend you go Google this mic because the very first search results are some extremely useful test videos by some guys I know. So uh, all three videos (laughs) that appear at the top are from YouTube, so... It's a conspiracy. It was a big setup. It was just a big setup. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, we, we're not sponsored by Audio Technica. They've never given me a dime. Yeah. Well, let's go through uh, recorders real quick. Um, just what are some of the recommendations? Maybe Curtis, you can just like list the the decent ones as fast as you can think of them. Yeah. The, the, well, the first tip I got was from uh, our friend Ray was the Tascam DR60D. Now they're on the Mark II version. Um, I think for the money, which is about $200 with two XLR inputs, that's a pretty fantastic recorder. Do not buy it if you're planning to use a microphone like a lavalier that has a 3.5 millimeter plug on it. It's not great for that. But if you are using XLR-based microphones, the Tascam DR60D Mark II is a pretty good budget find, I think. Uh, If you're moving up the scale from there, the Zoom F4 is a really fantastic recorder. It's probably more in the five, lost track of how much, that that one's been on sale a lot lately. I think they may be getting ready to refresh it, but that one costs, I think, around 500 and, I'm not sure how much that one is, about $500. Um, It is, it has four XLR inputs. It has fantastic preamplifiers. This is uh, well beyond what you would get in any of the Zoom Handy series, the Zoom H6, H5, H4N, um, any of those. Really, really fantastic top-notch preamplifiers and a lot of lot of capabilities. On the other side is sound devices with their Mix Pre series, the Mix Pre 3, um, which Tyler, you'll have here on the next little, or no, you actually have that one already. I do, yeah. Um, I, I, I actually have to ask you a question about that. Did the when you opened that up and started you, know, you you did your first recording with it? Did you hear angels singing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what really struck me is the build quality and the design of it. It's so nice to work with. Uh, my first tests, I didn't notice a big difference because I was already using uh, an external preamp. I've got the DBX two eighty six S that preamps mm-hmm. this mic. So what I was getting before and then after I added this, I didn't get the jump that I might have, but. The, the ways that you use it is just so well designed. Like one thing I really, really love and appreciate is the built-in analog limiter, um, which hopefully I'll never really need. But it would have saved me in the case of my clipping audio the other day where mm-hmm. it will actually prevent the clipping. Um, it, won't, it will not distort at that top end. You'll, your audio might still sound a little weird if you've turned it up way too loud, but it won't be falling apart in that same way. Um, so th- there's just some features in it that are so well thought out. It's very, very well designed. I think that's an interesting point to bring up because I think what a lot of people assume is, okay, if I spend $200 on a recorder and then I go and move up and upgrade to something that costs $600, the audio quality is going to be clearly $400 better, right? I wish. And and I think generally that's not the case. But what you are getting are things like what you mentioned, Tyler. You're getting those analog limiters, which will save you in those awkward situations where you didn't gain stage or you didn't set your input level correctly. Um, It will also make, I think, cleaner recording a lot easier if you are using microphones that require a lot of amplification. So if you're sure SM7Bs or your Heil PR40s, um, things of that nature, um, it's going to be easier to to do that than it would be with a more consumer-oriented recorder. And that's, I think, it's those kind of thoughtful features that make a difference there. And I really strongly recommend episode 102 of the Podcaster Studio from Ray, where he did some very deep explanations of how preamps cause noise, where it starts to cross over with your mic noise. And there's a lot to think about there that I 
never bothered to think about till I heard you talk about it. And that's with Julian Krauss. So there's a new YouTube channel. He used to have like a German only channel and now he's doing an English channel. And he's probably on, I don't know if he's on your radar, Curtis, but he sort of entered our our niche of audio recording. And so he's doing tests on preamps. He has a special little device he built that I now had to buy a soldering iron because I now want to try it too. But a really cool, you should check out a really cool channel, Julian Krauss as well. And he he's where I leaned on for a lot of the information. This episode is brought to you by Cronaby Watches, whose watch faces are designed as well as their interfaces. I just made that up right now, but I think it sounds pretty great, and it's true. They do everything in-house from beginning to end. They have designed all of their own hardware, software, and put it all together in a really beautiful package that will fit in with your best pieces in your wardrobe. I mean, these are traditionally designed, classic-looking watches that just happen to have the additional features of a smartwatch inside of it. So things that it can do are basic notifications. It's kind of my favorite thing is just knowing what my phone is doing when it's across the room. I get little buzzes for especially texts or phone calls. But it can also do more advanced stuff like control your camera or playback for your music. It can drop pins in a map as you're wandering around so you remember where you were. But then on top of that, it just looks great. It looks like your grandfather's watch or your grandmother's watch. They have various watch sizes. So one challenge with smartwatches is that they're all kind of big. They have to fit big batteries and big screens in them. Because these are real watch faces, it's a much slimmer and smaller design. So they're able to fit it into both 38, 40, and 41 millimeter designs. So you can kind of choose the same watch size that you would if you were buying a traditional watch. They're designed in Sweden by an incredibly talented team. I had the privilege once to go there and visit them at their headquarters. They're all very nice, extremely smart people, and impeccably well-dressed. So obviously they're not going to wear something that doesn't look good. So why should you? Go out and check out Cronaby.com. That's K-R-O-N-B-Y.com and take a look at what they have to offer. I promise you're going to want at least one of these. They're fantastic watches. And thanks again to Cronaby for supporting the show. All right, time to move into your area of expertise, Ray. Uh-oh. Uh, Mr. Podcast Helper, help us with podcasting. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, where, where do we start? So now all of a sudden, the headphones and earbuds are much closer to the listener's ears. They're going to be aware of every mistake that you make or every weird bit of audio. So the pressure is on to make it sound as good as possible. What do we need to be thinking about? Right, I mean, as you're saying, the quality needs to be amazing. And that was actually in our notes and I added why? Why is that? And you've sort of hit on that. You know, most, more typically, someone is going to have like earbuds in, right? So they're just going to be able to hear things that they don't hear. Um, you know, they might be playing you in the car and then you have kind of a wide berth of how the audio sounds because there's so many other distracting noises. But cars even seal off the noise really well these days too. So, um, but the audio is just going to be um, more literally in the ears of the person. You're going to hear more of the mistakes. You don't have like a music bed that you might have in a vlog, which is covering up some other stuff. You don't have that ambient background. Now, of course, this is for a, this is for a podcast that takes place in sort of a, a studio space, something we're doing right now. Um, so the, the imperfections stick out more and you it might be a monologue. So it's just, it's just you. And, you know, really also your peers, like the other podcasts that exist in the space these days. When I started, you know, content and just getting something out there was you're way ahead of the game. But as you have more professional organizations, the NPR has always been here. But your podcast, I mean, it can be found right up alongside a podcast that gets 10, you know, 10 million downloads. 
actually there's like probably 0.1% that does 10 million, but it could be right next to, you know, something that Roman Mars is doing or any of these large networks that have really nice studios, NPR again. And, you know, if you go from that to your podcast, it's very obvious. Um, whereas YouTube, again, we talked about, there's a lot of different things going on in video where the audio quality is, it's not going to be, it's not going to match, but podcast audio tends to be podcast audio. Um, it's in a studio, uh, for the most part. And again, the imperfections stand out, but then back to that thing that I said, where, where you don't sometimes know bad audio until you hear really good audio. And then they go to your show and they're like, Oh, wow. All right. And you'll see it in the reviews. I mean, people will leave reviews, say, I, I love the show. I just, I can't listen to this. Like it just, it's distracting. So if you're taking people away from that story that you're trying to tell in a podcast, um, you know, I do professional podcasts for an organization. It's a science organization. There was a really interesting study how they looked at how bad sound quality can actually have a very detrimental effect to the integrity of what you know, people give to a scientist. Like they don't believe them as much when they're talking about their science when the audio is bad. So I thought that was very interesting. And of course, I shoved that across my boss's desk to say, look, I'm important. This has to sound good. <laughs> but yeah, that's just some of the issues. And again, being in a studio space that is typical of an independent producer is that less or that non-ideal recording environment. Again, we're not in studios, so reverb and other issues outside. You know, the gardener's going to be next to you recording. I mean, not recording. But <laughs> I love that. You look out the window and the gardener is podcasting from your lawn. <laughs> he, he probably has a podcast about lawn care because everyone has a podcast. That's a joke, right? Anyways, I can go on and on, but that's well, please. I, I mean, that's what you're here to go on and on. I mean, I, I, I have thoughts too, but I feel like maybe I've said them more often on the show, but I guess now I get my my chance to, to rant about them. The, the most frustrating thing to me is when I hear, when I hear bad audio on a podcast, that should be the easy part, honestly. I mean, we're making it sound more difficult because there's a lot of tips we can give to make it close to perfect. But to get decent audio is actually pretty straightforward. And there's all these shows I listen to where it's just terrible. You're sitting in the car and you can't hear what the people are saying and you're turning the volume up and down manually, especially you, you crank it up because one of the guests is really quiet and then somebody else laughs right into the microphone and you instantly have to turn it back down because it's ear shattering. Like the expectation is much higher than that now. And if you have that kind of production, people won't listen. Well, the thing is, or you lose your chance, yeah. right? They will listen and then they're gone. And what they don't do is come back. And they don't tell you why they left either. You don't realize that all these people aren't sticking around because right. it was just too hard to listen to you. It's very hard to, it's harder to get an audience to a podcast. So when they get there, you don't want them to turn, turn them off from the story you're trying to tell. Absolutely. Well, so let's start there with what are the easy, what's the easiest way to make it sound great? Like what's the minimum things you can buy, minimum steps to take while you're recording? I mean, right off the top, I think the beauty, I, I kind of referred to the time we're in 2019 here is that we're talking about a lot of gear and most of it, if you look it up, you're going to say, wow, that's, that's actually out of my budget. But Good audio doesn't is not necessarily dependent on having a heavy budget, right? You don't have to have a lot of money. I mean, I recommend for starters, if you have low budget, the Samson Q2U, which is basically the same equivalent as the ATR 2100, 2100, ATR 2100. I can get that right. And uh, it's you can get it for anywhere from 50 to 60, 70 bucks. And it's fantastic. And you will get what you need. You'll get a good microphone just goes right in via USB and it'll it'll produce good quality. You'll be happy with your results from episode one. I think that's important. It's nice to go back through your catalog and not 
not cringe when you hear the first 10 episodes and say, wow, that was really bad when I was using the built-in mic or some really cheap mic that just was no good. Um, so just getting minimal level, a decent microphone um, is most of what you need to accomplish in the beginning. And that, that just will help a lot. And it, again, the beauty is it doesn't require lots of money. Yeah. And then uh, another very common issue I hear uh, that creates what I was just talking about of the quiet loud is people will be unaware of the mic while they're recording. So they'll be looking, a simple thing is like right now I'm looking at my mic the whole time because we're on Skype. I don't need to make any eye contact. But if somebody else is in the room and I look over to talk to them on my right, all of a sudden my level drops out a lot. And if you're not kind of aware of where your mic is relative to your voice, you can have these really big jumps up and down. So even after you have the half-decent mic, try, try to remember to talk into it while it's in front of you. Yeah, mic technique is obviously paramount. Um, you can do some things in post-production with compression or maybe even when you're recording live when you get into some um, hardware that you mentioned, the DBX-286S. And, you know, we talked, we sort of hit on the law of diminishing returns, right? Where I buy a, a piece of gear that's $100 and I buy a piece that's $400 and you're like, I didn't get this massive jump. Sometimes, you know, on something like even like an SM7B or that RE20, the mics we've mentioned, they're, even the pattern, you you might notice that the quality comes in small small ways where the pattern is more consistent. When I get off the microphone, it still picks me up decently the same the way a cheaper mic might not. So uh, I think, what are they, the neodymium magnet or something in the RE20, which is a super expensive microphone. Uh, dynamic almost sounds like a condenser. It's fantastic, but most people would not get into that microphone. But it actually sort of tries to, I think, is is known for compensating for that a little bit. Right, Curtis? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, I, and I, there are some subtleties, a lot of subtleties once you start spending more money. So I, I agree when when Tyler said, you know, the angels didn't sing when he started recording with his mix pre, but that didn't mean that there wasn't value there, but it came in little smaller ways than than you might expect. It wasn't like a massive, massive jump in, aud- in just raw audio quality. It was the little things that kind of tripped you up in the past, maybe with the cheaper gear, um, weren't as much of a problem with the newer one. And that's a great example of that with the RE20. If we're trying to create the best possible podcast, there's some common popular mics that we're both using two of the ones that get talked about the most. I think the Shure SM7B has become the most well-known option lately. I think especially, I think one of the biggest reasons for its success is that it looks great on camera. It's compact, all black, so it, it can disappear into a set. For people that don't care about audio production, it, it feels like a real mic, but it gets out of the way. And then it sounds great as well. Um, but it's a, it can be a little challenging to work with. Uh, Ray did a whole episode all about this lately. So uh, most recent episode as of this recording of the Podcaster Studio goes really in-depth about the SM7B. Um, it's a really interesting mic. I don't have one. I haven't used one. But uh, a lot of people like it. Yeah, and it's not, you know, it's mid-level. It's not cheap. It's you're staring down the barrel of $400, which I have a theory about that. It was 350 for a long time. I think podcasting, I think that popularity you're talking about was driven uh, by podcasting and allowed them to raise the price. That's a total theory. I have no, no proof of that other than sure also markets it as a podcasting mic in addition to being a broadcast mic as well. And it was used to record Michael Jackson on his Thriller album, so you <laughs> yes. can't argue with that. It's the infamous. I, I like to I like to go with uh, James from Metallica, but yes, it is infamous for the uh, Thriller <laughs> album being recorded on. on and and sure. technically, I think it was its predecessor. It was the it was the the version that came before. But yes, nevertheless, SM7, <laughs> right? And then when it comes to actually recording things, uh, we've talked about some of the options that'll work. So all the sort of field recorders that we mentioned in studio 
are going to be options as well. Uh, some of them can't be an audio interface. So if you're going to be recording Skype uh, as well, it can't necessarily create an input to your computer. So I think my Tascam DR70D can't do that, for example. It can only be recording external stuff. So if, if I have people in the room, it would work very well, but not so well if I was doing this situation we have right now. Uh, right now, we're using I'm using the Mix Pre 3 on my end to uh, record both Skype call and my voice, um, but also the another great option that I've used a lot is the Focusrite 6i6. There's also the 2i2, which is a bit more affordable. They have very good preamps, um, not necessarily loud enough for mics like the SM7B that needs tons and tons of gain. But Well, first of all, I would say when people come to me and I know when they're serious, meaning they're just, they just want to know what to get, and when they are willing to make an investment, I don't mess around. I, you know, I'm not saying get the Shure SM7B. Don't hear that and think I'm saying go get it because it's a tough mic. You're going to need professional gear to support it. You know, we're talking about um, preamps and all that stuff. It needs a lot of gain. It's not sensitive at all. Um, and that can come with noise if you don't have a pro. You know, it's a broadcast professional mic meant to be used in a professional environment. And we are typically bringing them sort of into consumer environments when we get into the podcasting. Um, so there are devices like, uh, mic activators that can help if you have like a Zoom H5. But I'm not saying buy the SM7B at all. I'm telling you that Q2U is going to rock. You're going to love that. But if you're serious, you don't want to fool around. You don't want to wonder if the gear is what your problem is. You can remove all that by just get the Mix Pre 3. Like when people are real serious, um, that's what I say. And you're talking about interfaces. One of the beauties of the Mix Pre is that it can be a recorder and an interface at the very same time. This is not something that a lot of gear does. Um, you either have to decide, am I buying it to be a recorder or am I buying it to be an interface sometimes and a recorder sometimes, which is a lot of the, the Zoom series. So yeah, when people don't want to fool around, if we're talking about getting serious, j just go straight to the mix pre. And then you know what? You can buy whatever mic you want because it's going gonna, it's gonna to handle that. It is a professional device. Well, and that's how I'm using it now is that it is returning uh, – it, it, it's recording internally to itself, to an SD card, which hardware recording is always a little more secure than a full computer because the software on a computer, the full OS, has a lot more points of failure where it, it could suddenly crash or lose your data. So it, it can be a little safer to be recording to an uh, external recorder. But then I'm running that in through USB-C into my iMac, and Audio Hijack is then also recording those exact same inputs. Don't want to lose all the time you spent, and that that's a that's a great point. I think they're they're you know once you once you kind of get serious about your podcast and your voiceover setup, that having that redundancy and having that that kind of safety to fall back to is is pretty important. And it's worth it's easily worth the you know the four hundred dollar investment one time that gives you that kind of peace of mind and saves you those several times that you may need it you know across its life. I think there's one other thing that's uh, interesting too, and I and I hate to kind of harp on this topic, but uh, I did some consulting for a group of guys that um, run a gym and actually have done some training for actors and stuff like this. And they wanted to start a podcast. And so I went down and we met with them and they were in the process of trying to treat this room. They had this kind of big uh, warehouse that they had converted into a gym and some offices. And they were kind of, they were pasting this uh, acoustic foam, this mm. kind of thin acoustic foam all over the walls of the entire room. And they're like, we're just, we're still not getting the sound we want. Um, and what we ended up doing is we ended up instead hanging, like you talked about, Tyler, They, were, uh, 
I think they ended up doing a more permanent installation eventually, but they went out and bought several of these sound blankets and hung those around the room, and it made a night and day difference. And so, again, for most of us that are recording in household environments or offices that aren't designed for acoustical purposes, having those sound blankets can make a big, big difference. And you can, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I can't really put anything up permanently. And I totally understand that. In a house, that's not necessarily something you can do. But what you can do in those cases is a, a century stand or finding another way to rig up those sound blankets, at least temporarily while you're recording, can make an enormous, enormous difference. And so if you're working with a budget where you can only afford uh, the, the Q2U microphone that Ray rec- uh, you know, recommends, and some sound blankets and a you know a, a fairly straightforward recorder or audio interface, I would say spend your money that way. Don't invest it all into a microphone. Don't invest it all into really high-end outboard analog recording gear like a well even a DBX286S or you know whatever other processing gear is out there. But instead, um, you know, really kind of focus on getting that reverb under control. I totally, totally agree. 100% indoors. I mean, Curtis kind of, he was a little shy about bringing it back up, but it not not at all. It's because it is paramount. The single thing that is going to determine most the sound quality is where you are recording it. And again, we've kind of covered if you're, you know, if you're out and you're vlogging and you're, at, you know, you're outside and you've got a shotgun microphone on your camera and you're close to it. You're probably set, but when we get into these more sort of uh, critical spaces where the only sound is your voice, um, that space is what's going to stick out the most as as an issue most of the time. I mean, obviously, you have a bunch of noise. You're going to have to to noise that is created by gear. You're going to have to solve that, but it's it cannot be overstated how much uh, how critical and and like her saying, that's the number one place to start with your money. If especially if you're on a budget, focus on getting that space to sound good. And then most anything you put in it will also sound pretty good once you learn some best practices, of course. Let's get to post-production. Very important, final step of everything, but um, very easy to overdo as well. Uh, It's funny because you can completely save something or you can destroy it at the very last minute, depending how you treat this last step. There's a few things that I have been doing lately that have really really helped and prevented me from continuing to struggle. First, let's talk about loudness. This is maybe the biggest issue after you've captured good audio is having a level that feels right to the listener. And, you know, think about watching TV and if the commercials come on and they're twice as loud as the show, it's annoying. It, it doesn't feel right. But typically, you know, TV, everybody is doing it to a specific standard. I'm sure both of you could tell me what that standard is. Can somebody remind me? <laughs> Yeah, in the United States, it's minus 24 LUFS for TV broadcast. So let's start there. What is LUFS? In the simplest terms. LUFS stands for loudness units full scale. It's just a way of measuring uh, loudness in in the way that humans perceive loudness. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, because if you look at a waveform, you're going to see a lot of ups and downs. And the first intuitive way you start thinking about loudness is you look at the loudest parts of it, the peaks, and you think, oh, that's about how loud it is. So the first step is typically to normalize, where you're bringing all those peaks up to as loud as they can without clipping. But that doesn't really affect the overall sound of it. So you might have just laughed really loudly in one moment or said some one word very loud, and then the whole rest of it can be much too quiet because that one uh, exaggerated peak is distorting the the view of how the rest of it should sound. 
So what are some of the easiest ways to get this, well, I was about to use the word normalize. What's the appropriate word even for getting all of the audio sounding good? <laughs> it is loudness normalization, and you should just run straight to auphonic.com. I mean, even as a podcaster especially, you get two hours free a month, which can handle most podcasts. But not only will it handle hitting this LUFS, it's all you need to know is what number you want. And in fact, actually, you don't because it has a label for podcast um, in there. Uh, and it's, if you want to know, it's minus 16 LUFS for stereo. This is a recommendation. It's not like a, a hard spec, but in general, just go with it. Uh, and minus 19 if you're doing producing mono audio. Uh, if your final MP3 is mono versus stereo, there's a difference how we perceive those. And so they should be a different number. But not only will it hit that number for you, what's super critical is that if you have more than one person or even yourself, you're talking about these different levels of, you know, it, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, it'll level out that audio. So your audience is not the human compressor, right? The compressor is turning audio up, turning it down, whatever it needs to do to sort of balance it. And so Auphonic.com, and you can just get you into it. And it's super simple. Like it's drag and drop or it's upload, depending on which service you use. I prefer the down, uh, the desktop version that I can just drag and drop, but you can upload it for free, pull it back down from the web and it can perform, it can perform that for you. That's the easiest low bar. I don't really need to know much way to get into it. It'll do a couple of other things for you too. It'll it'll actually do some noise reduction if you if for some reason you found you got yourself into a situation where you're going to need some of that and a few other things as well. So it'll it does a really nice job. It's post production for people who don't want to learn anything about post production. It can be. Now I'm not saying it's like it's not incredible magic. You need to have some some good audio going into it, but it's a great place to start. So what I spent a long time doing before this was trying to master compression, uh, which. Uh, you know, all compressors are slightly different. They can be hard to really get the hang of. So, for example, in a one-hour podcast, you can compress so that the sample you're listening to sounds perfect and you totally dialed it in. And then as you listen further, you realize that your guest was leaning back and forth from the mic and all of a sudden there's other parts that weren't, the compression doesn't quite work for. I, I really struggled with this for a while trying to figure it out. For a while, I was just using a limiter. Um, and that's a very simple way to do it. There's not a lot of controls. They're easy to understand. And it definitely gets your overall levels up without creating any clipping. Unfortunately, that also brings up the silence and the noise in that silence. So you will, you can kind of have this, this bed of noise coming through that you don't want or need at all. So once I switched to, I was using Auphonic. Now the way that I do it is with Audition, which has the built-in match loudness. It's effectively, it seems to be the same. I'm not sure if they're doing something slightly differently, but they performed the same function. And honestly, I spent all this time watching tutorials, trying to understand how to master compression. And when I just started leaning on these automated services, they did it so much better that I'm I'm not looking back. This is this is how I'm determining my loudness from now on. Just letting the pros do it. Yeah. <laughs> Am I doing the right thing? Is that is that a good idea? Uh, I would say that the, that you're doing the right thing. If you are, if you as a podcaster are spending all of your time, here's the thing: Ray Ray and I nerd out seriously about audio, and and so I think the two of us have have spent countless hours trying to kind of fine tune. And I think I still have a lot to learn about compression. Um, about you know doing all sorts of post processing things, um, but if you're a podcaster trying to produce content and you need to focus on the content and you need to focus on getting your audience to get you know, or sorry your your co-hosts together and you know all, there are so many things to do as a podcaster, I would do what's what works and and if this is working for you then I think is a great solution. Post production should ideally be the polish 
right? It should really finish it off. I I like to say you can't make bad audio good. You can just make it less bad. And and you mentioned already that in post-production, you can really go too far too fast um, very easily. It does not take much. So ideally, focus on how to record good audio. And if you get good audio, you can go into post-production and a phonic will do an amazing thing with good audio. It'll be fantastic, but you won't have to learn too much. Some very simple, I showed you a very simple compression um, that I do with a very basic compressor you find in every audio editing platform, free or premium. I still use a trick that I learned from Curtis where he, in audition, you could see um, like a, a scale of the DB and it basically, I looked at a number and I could see where my peaks hit and I just measure it for that number. Um, Mike Russell is on, uh, is on YouTube and he has a great, has a bunch of post-production, uh, of, um, audition tutorials as well. So again, if you focus most of your knowledge first on how to get a good recording, you know, gain staging, which I don't think we talked very much about. Um, we talked plenty about the gear, but give me that good recording and that post-production, you shouldn't have to do much. A bigger thing I don't want to blow by is how to choose which uh, major piece of software to use, which DAW, which, what does DAW stands for again? Can somebody remind me? Digital Audio Workstation. How do you choose which one you're going to use? Um, A lot of people start with something like GarageBand, uh, which is free. Don't do that. Yeah. I I never did. (laughs) I, even when I was a beginner, it felt too simple for me. I was like, I know this is, I'm going to grow out of this in a week. Here's the thing for me, and because um, a lot of people do start there, uh, Audacity is free. It's the one you'll hear recommended most. It's open source. It works on pretty much all uh, platforms, uh, OSs, and GarageBand comes with Mac, and so it's a great way to start. But I find that a lot of people, myself included, you're going to spend time to learn each piece of software. Um, they all have different ways of doing things, even though they have some commonalities between them. You know, you're going to cut, you're going to move audio around. It might have a compressor, a limiter in it, but each piece of software is unique. So you're going to have to spend time learning that. And then you tend to stick with what you learn. Who wants to go and learn a whole other piece? We do. I mean, we enjoy software <laughs> and learning that stuff, but most people, they're, they're there to create a podcast, not learn a whole new platform. And what I find if, again, here's another great opportunity to, to take the chance to invest a little bit, because you are going to, that investment's going to pay dividends in time saved frustration saved, all these things. Because something like Audition, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the subscription model, but you can get just Audition for like 19 bucks a month. It is well worth it. There's Hindenburg Journalist, which is a which is an option for people who want to spend the money one time, but get great features for something like a podcast. Um, on Apple, if you just get Logic, you'll be so much happier than if you get, uh, you know, use GarageBand, and that's a one-time purchase. So Make your investment here. It's, it's hugely important. What you don't get, and I think a lot of people think they get, and we've addressed this here, is, oh, I, I spent money on an editor, editor or DAW, so it's going to be better audio. You're not going to get better audio, or you're not going to get worse audio by using free. Again, you're going to get mostly workflow, maybe some plugins, things that make the process faster and easier, and that matters that matters huge when you're in content production trying to do this stuff every week or whatever your schedule is. So we mentioned Isotope RX-6, which can be expensive unless you get it on sale. Is there any other recommendations that you guys have? No, I, I was just going to say, be careful. Don't. I, I think Ray's going to talk about Authonic just a little bit. That would be one of the few recommendations I would make. I would actually recommend don't go crazy. Don't buy a bunch of plugins. Don't get trapped in the world of 
oh, if only I had these 16 other plugins from Waves, it only cost me $1,600, that my audio is just going to sound amazing. No, really, uh, to Ray's point earlier, learn how to record good audio. And once you have the tracks laid down, you shouldn't need a lot of post-production. The, I, the, the one thing we haven't talked about here and that I think that on the the really very nicely produced podcasts, um, someone that I don't know if, if you are aware of him, um, Tyler, is uh, Paul Figiani, I think is how you say his name. Is that correct, Ray? Yeah, I was actually just talking to Tyler in the pre-show about, about uh, Paul. About Paul. Paul is, I, I mean, he's doing things like he, I think what he's also doing is, he will actually close the the open mic. So if you have a, a three person podcast, my favorite, he's actually going to apply you know attenuation to the mics that are, are of the people that aren't talking. So that's going to make the overall effect even cleaner. And that's that's stuff you can do in any digital audio workstation. But my overall advice is keep it simple. Get a good digital audio workstation, and um, just keep it simple. If you get Adobe Audition, for example, you don't even have to buy Auphonic because now you have that match loudness, and you can get pretty much everything you need right there in one spot. Yeah, for me, I would say the isotope is the first time I, I'm I'm cheap on some things. So uh, plugins are hard to spend money on because you don't really it's not a it's a less tangible product, right? You're like that's really expensive for what am I getting? Like it's a menu drop down <laughs> in my software. Like that's really expensive, and they can be so costly. So that's also why I waited for a sale. But when I got isotope, I, I mentioned early on it that just the uh dialogue denoise or vocal denoise they change they've changed the name of it um that's basically what it's called for me um was the difference between m- me getting the final result i wanted and uh what i could get before it so if there is only one thing to purchase when it comes to s- software um that isotope and what's nice about that pack is it actually comes with its own standalone um, like audio editor processing tool. It, it, that's another thing about audio editors. A lot of these devices we've mentioned, so a lot of the focus rights, um, some other uh, the some of the recorders, they also come with DAWs oftentimes or licenses for some version of a high quality DAW. Um, so you might be set right there from another piece of gear you've already purchased from listening to the previous conversation. A tip I don't want to forget is that to to get that really great vocal noise reduction we're talking about, you do need to find a silent part of the audio where it's only the noise signal, select it and tell Isotope to learn that noise pattern and then apply that to the whole track. If you have it, just uh, use adaptive mode where it's in real time trying to apply noise reduction, you may not be sure what we're talking about, why it's so good. You can hear a, a little more artifacting and it's not as clean. Um, and so, yeah, your Alphonic is also another one that I, I really like their model. Like the, pa- the package is very appealing. It's a great price point, very well designed and very simple to use. The only things I don't love is because they are so simple, the quality is somewhat sacrificed. And I don't think that's necessarily because they wrote bad software. It's it's actually, it's pretty good, but you may not be able to dial in some of that repair functionality that the way that I would like to, or that I've gotten used to now that I use Isotope. And again, free version of, of that to use. So that's another thing about that DAWs that I like to recommend all the time. Almost every DAW, every editor, you can download and try because you might not like working in one versus the other. Sometimes it comes down to personal preference and how you want to work, how you cut audio. I have a very strict requirement. If the ripple delete does not work the way I want, 
I'm out of there. So I went down with the ship on Sound Soundtrack Pro, and then I I finally made the switch to Audition. Again, part of that thing was I didn't want to change. Uh, I had to change because they got rid of Soundtrack Pro that used to come with the Final Cut suite. And I made I bent Audition to my will, and it's now my favorite of all time. But try you can try all of these. I would just add to that. Uh, that's a great great advice. And I think that one thing that you have to do you have to be fair on to yourself is that when you get a trial version, most of them are 30 days, you have to use it for the 30 days. You have to immerse yourself in it to really understand if you're going to appreciate and if it's going to work for you. Um, that's that's what I ended up doing with... Um, I used to be, a, for example, this is actually not in the... This is more in the video world. I was a premiere editor. Um, I wanted to try Final Cut. And so I forced myself. I, I downloaded the trial version and forced myself to do all the editing I was going to do that month on Final Cut. And that's when it kind of... For me, it made sense. It was like, okay, this is the one that's going to work for me. And so then I made the switch. So give yourself a little time. You can't, you can't just spend an hour with it. You really have to kind of dive in. Well, that is um, most of the things I had on the list. Do, do you guys think I missed anything? I think we, we may have scared some people away. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's easier than you think. Listen to the times that we said, look how easy it is. Just put up some sound blankets and uh, buy a yeah, half-decent cheap mic. But there's, there's so much more information about this. I mean, if we left anything somewhat confusing, both of you guys have created so much great educational material out there. Uh, if you could tell everybody where to find you, it would be really helpful. How about you, Ray? Yeah, you can pretty much find everything I do at rayortega.com. So check that out. And I would emphasize that I hope that we've opened the door. Like if you're listening this far, you're still interested and you're curious. All of us, Curtis still said he still has so much to learn and he knows so much, right? So we all are learning. It, it's a lifelong process, right? Learn a few basics, grab a few minimal pieces of gear, and you need to start doing it. Like I always say that even you could sit here and record podcasts uh, one after the other that you never publish, but there's something about hit and record and then publishing it to the world. You can't get better till you do that. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. And when you are playing around with this stuff, especially like post-production, you need to push too far. I even feel myself hesitate sometimes to like do something crazy, my EQ, like like I'm going to ruin something that I'm not planning to put out there. So you need to just go crazy, mess with the gear. You need to make mistakes so you know how far you can go. So I think we've opened the door. And then again, reartega.com and ask questions as I'm podcast helper all over the place. And that's really, it's what really what we're trying to do is, is create a sort of a, an enthusiasm that we have and that's only created and you're only going to achieve what you want by asking those questions and messing with the gear. I don't know about you, but I usually discover my mistakes after I hit publish. So that's, it's the most effective way of exposing what I did wrong. <laughs> exactly. That's I'm yeah, saying. That's why your podcast sounds amazing. Actually, exactly. when you, when you contacted me, Tyler, I was like, oh, who is this guy? I went and checked out the podcast. I'm like, oh, wow. He does really well on his audio. Oh, I'd thanks. like to be on that I podcast. Mean, it's, hard, it's especially hard when the guests don't care about it. So I try to invite people on that I know are going to speak into a nice microphone on their end as well. I told you we're the single worst people to judge our own audio because Tyler would be like, I have so far to go. And here's Absolutely. Curtis, who's a pro, saying, amazing. Well, I really appreciate it, Curtis. And so where can people find you? On YouTube, I'm Curtis Judd. On uh, my own website is learnlightandsound.com. And then if you're into Twitter, Curtis Judd over at Twitter. Thanks, guys. This was great.